hey, basketball, meat hook. That is kind of funny, though, because, like, what part of your body has less meat on it than your hand? Welcome to Spinsters, a podcast where the only thing we love more than basketball is women. I'm Haley. This is Jordan, the world's most adorable Danny Green hater. And we are joined today by Bronwyn Clark, host and producers of Them's the Rules, a podcast about written and unwritten rules. We're going to take a quick break. And then after the break, we're going to hear about a person who basically started women's basketball and the ways that she had to protect it. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you've got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Go to Indeed.com slash Spinsters to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com spin. Okay, so a couple of months ago, Bronwyn, you pitched us a story about the origin of women's basketball, and it had so many ridiculous rules, and there was a woman who introduced the sport to women. She was also the person who gave everything to save it. So Bronwyn, who is she? Yeah, so this is the story of Cinda Berenson Abbott, who is known as the mother of women's basketball, except I had never heard of her, and I found her really by accident. I was researching the rules of women's basketball, which in and of themselves are completely fascinating. And I found out that the 60 year evolution of women's basketball rules evolved in parallel to the women's suffrage movement. And behind it all, Cinda Berenson, she introduced women's basketball. She was creating the rules in response to the changes that were happening in society at the time, negotiating propriety on and off the court, trying to make sure that women had the chance to develop an athletic side to them. She really was part of the movement that created the new woman of the turn of the century that really left behind the Victorian ideals of womanhood. I couldn't believe that most of us don't know who she is and that was kind of mind-blowing. Okay, so picture you are in 1984 outside of the Springfield Civic Center and there's a big NBA basketball game about to happen and There's a group of protesters standing outside from the National Organization for Women who are protesting Mm -hmm. because the Basketball Hall of Fame in 1984 does not yet have a female inductee. And these people outside are trying to get Cinda Berenson Abbott inducted into the Hall of Fame. And this is their sixth attempt to get her in. And they just keep getting rejected. There's not a single woman in there? Not at all. This is the 80s. (laughs) That's shocking. There's one woman in particular the protesters are fighting to have enshrined. Cinda Berenson Abbott, a.k.a. the mother of women's basketball. At this point in 1984, she has already been rejected six times since the Hall of Fame opened in 1959. Sadly, it's not surprising. Defenders of the status quo running the same tired play to limit women's progress Basically, sexism is society's strategic equivalent of the full-court press. 
When we look at women's basketball in context, its evolution becomes an allegorical tale of the long game women have played and are still playing for equality, starting with the first women's game ever recorded in a modest Smith College gymnasium in the winter of 1893. Senda is the last person anyone would have expected to revolutionize sport, which she did quite politely, I must add, because for the first two decades of her life, she was the paragon of female biological inferiority. She was very frail and sickly, and I find this absolutely endearing. She resolutely hated exercise. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Imagine a world where daughters can't play basketball. Without Senda, their right to play would never have been guaranteed. Sure, Senda Berenson would one day give women their day in court, or I guess on court, long before the women's liberation movement of the late 1960s. But like women's basketball, her legendary life had a very humble beginning. Senda was born in March of 1868 in a small Jewish town near what is present-day Vilnius, Lithuania. I spoke with Dr. Ralph Melnick, author of the only Senda Berenson biography out there, luckily it's a good one, to get some context about her life. Back then, Lithuania was under the restrictive control of the Russian Empire. It was a very fiddler-on-the-roof situation. Her father was a merchant. He had a very successful business uh, as, as a lumber broker which was uh, one of the standard businesses that Jews got into. But the thing about lumber is that it's very combustible. And then he got burnt out, and most likely because he was Jewish, and so it was just an anti-Semitic act. And so there was no reason for him to remain there because it was, it was getting worse. So, like many other millions of immigrants at that time seeking a better life for their family, Senda's father sets his sight on America. He moves ahead of the family to Boston, Massachusetts, which is already a melting pot, and he manages to scrape together an existence as a peddler of pots and pans. A year later, in 1875, the rest of the family, Senda, who's now seven, her two brothers, and her mom, join him. They anglicize their name to Berenson and find a home near the North Station rail yard in Boston's West End, just ahead of an even greater influx of Eastern European Jews. Here's a brief snapshot of America when Cinda arrives in 1875. We're nearing the end of the post-Civil War Reconstruction era. Ulysses S. Grant is in the White House. Rapid industrialization and the invention of modern conveniences are reshaping the country. Labor unions are becoming a thing, and women's suffrage is gathering speed. To say this would be a culture shock for Cinda would be an understatement. Her father insists that the family become Americanized as soon as possible and abandon all ties with the Jewish culture. He's very passionate about quality education for his children, but as Dr. Melnick told me, he's a bit ornery. There seemed to have been a sense of relief when he died finally, because he was always picking them apart and criticizing them. Remember Cinda's poor health? Well, she is so physically weak and suffered such persistent back pain that she can't even make it through a full year of school, and she doesn't get a high school diploma. Luckily, she has her big brother, Bernard, to help her out. And he really saw himself as Senda's mentor. He saw her as his, as his life companion. There was a very, very close relationship between the two of them. Bernard is a good big brother, and he devotes himself to tutoring his sister— 
at home, keeping her supplied with books, even when he goes off to college at Harvard. And he brings Senda along. He brings her to meet with all his friends while she's still in high school and exposes her to that much broader world. He really wants Senda to get a higher education, too. And while doors are slowly opening for women at the turn of the century, these opportunities are still significantly limited. Really starting at this time when more and more really middle and upper class women, mostly white women, had the opportunity to go to college. That was Dr. Frances Davey, a historian and professor at Florida Gulf Coast University. She knows a lot about Senda Berenson and the restrictive Victorian ideals in which she grew up. More and more women were able to sort of conceptualize themselves outside of their relationship to men. So outside of their relationship to being a wife, to being a mother. Because at this time, they were getting a liberal education that prior to this had really only been afforded to men. There's a lot of concern that young women, if they are educated, all of their vital energy will be drained from their reproductive systems, by their brains. And the anti-suffrage claim was that these women would, quote, be afflicted with short hair, coarse skins, unsymmetrical figures, loud voices, tastelessness in dress, and an unattractive appearance and character generally. Smith College is a private liberal arts school in Northampton, Massachusetts, founded by a woman for women. Today, the Smith College Library is home to the Cinda Berenson Papers, and if you ever want to check them out, you can find them in the Converted Gym, which is also Cinda's original classroom. Their archived collection has articles, news clippings, notebooks, correspondence, lecture notes, photographs, you name it. This is from Cinda's personal notes. Whatever game the men play, we can play. Theoretically, perhaps we should be. Practically, we cannot. Women cannot compete with men in physical prowess. And why in the name of all that is sane should we? Why not rather have our ambition to go into sport for health, endurance, and the mere love of it? One could say much on this theme, but space does not permit. Well, I found some old pictures of her in the archives, and she was very petite, very small. She's got this demure, enigmatic smile that looks like she's up to something constantly. She also had dark, curly hair. She's got green eyes. You can't see them in the black and white photos, but it has been well documented that she had very piercing green eyes and was known for being shy, but also incredibly charming. She's really interested in arts and music. And sets her sights on the Boston Conservatory of Music to study piano and become a classical pianist. Her brother is thrilled. But soon after enrolling, she drops out because her debilitatingly sore back makes it too painful for her to practice. Cinda is desperate for a solution, which comes in the form of a new school in town, the Boston Normal School of Gymnastics, which in today's lingo just means a school that teaches you how to be a PE teacher. This school is the first in the country to offer a curriculum in the Swedish style of gymnastics, which emphasizes personal growth, social uplift, interpersonal skills, and physical health. A pretty holistic approach. And whether you loved PE class or hated it, I hated it. Did you guys like PE class growing up? I did. I did. I'm competitive, though. I'm kind of an asshole. <laughs> Same. I wanted to be all of the boys. Cinda is definitely part of the hates it group. She finds exercise more distasteful than medicine. She really does not come from this place of like, yay, I love running around and being fit. In a 1941 issue of the academic journal The Research Quarterly, 
Senda is quoted as saying, Gymnastic work did not interest me, and the simplest exercises made me ache all over. After five minutes of standing erect, I had to lie flat on three stools. This was not the school for Senda. She hated it, like, from the get-go. She saw it as a means to an end. Her plan was to go right back to the Boston Conservatory of Music as soon as she could tolerate sitting upright at a piano for more than five minutes. The curriculum was very physically taxing. She was doing all kinds of exercise classes that she had never done before, and she hated it. I also think it's just odd that she was able to do this curriculum, but she had to stop playing piano because it hurt her back to sit upright. During the classes, she had to take breaks like every five minutes and lie down on stools. I mean, I guess also wearing corsets and petticoats, you kind of need upper body strength. Were they wearing those during the classes? They were Mm. wearing corsets. That eventually changed as the era did. I'm like imagining wearing my wedding dress with my corset (laughs) trying to play. That sounds awful. As much as she hates it at first, though, Senda perseveres. And a few months in... She realizes that she's becoming much stronger. She's becoming much more balanced. And we mean that physically as well as morally, intellectually, spiritually. Probably the best lesson that Senda learns at the Boston Normal School of Gymnastics is that work and play don't have to be mutually exclusive goals. It's impossible to tell how my life had altered. I had changed an aching body to a free and strong mechanism, ready and eager for whatever might come. My indifference had changed to deep conviction, and I wanted to work only in physical education so that I might help others as I'd been helped. Cinda really does become a fitness evangelist. She approaches her classes with an almost religious fervor, adopting the school's belief in a moral obligation to be physically fit and healthy. This is a snippet from one of Senda's future lectures, which really outlines her approach to health. Physical education not only should produce health and endurance and poise and self-control, but it can be made the most direct way of bringing out ethical, mental, and moral forces, making the human organism a splendid instrument with which to meet all life's activities more easily, more vitally, more sanely, and more joyously. Very modern, actually. I think at Cinda Berenson would have been a great Instagram influencer of her day. Cinda does so well at the school that when Smith College reaches out for a substitute lady teacher for their new phys ed department, the director immediately recommends Cinda, who accepts. Two years before Senda begins working at Smith College, the school had built her classroom, called the Alumni Gymnasium. And this modern wooden structure was one of the very first athletic facilities built specifically for women. And it's also where the first formal game of women's basketball is played in 1892. But I'll get to that in a second. So when she comes in, you know, she's she's all pumped about physical education, right? She thinks, like, this is amazing, this is transformative. So she comes in, and, and she thinks, everybody's on board with this, and they're not. Senda faces a lot of pushback from faculty, administration, and students. Hardly anybody knows what physical education really is, and Smith's learned professors of scholarship look down at her department, claiming it's not a serious field of study. And on top of that, Senda's Yiddish accent was seen as funny by her colleagues and students. So she is up against a lot. I have absolutely no question that when she was at Smith, she heard many comments about Jews that made her uncomfortable. There's a fear on campus that exercise is injurious to the delicate mechanism of the female body. 
Nobody knows how much physical activity women can handle, nor how much it will violate womanly decorum. And of course, there are the parents, the loud, resistant-to-change parents outraged at the danger exercising might pose to their dainty daughters. Senda doesn't take no for an answer. Though petite with a heavy Yiddish accent, she has a commanding presence on campus and stands firm in her beliefs. Through her skills as a orator and as, you know, somebody who's just great at arguing, she manages to actually convince enough of the faculty and the administration that the programming is expanded. Cinda observes that the fight to legitimize physical education is like punching a pillow. If you made a dent in one place, a bulge came out in another. What are those pillows made out of? (laughs) I was just about to ask that. Like, she's got back problems. Do we think this maybe contributes to that at all? Yes. I mean, I, I got some memory foam pillows that are very soft and nice, and this does not seem like we're anywhere near that at all. Senda could have used a memory foam pillow because she definitely needed all the rest she could get. When she got to Smith, she was the only PE teacher for the entire school. And she had over 400 students that she was in charge of. Oh my gosh. Even as she slowly wins over her colleagues, her students remain very unenthusiastic about exercise. She assigned them little exercise cards. And students were supposed to write down, okay, on you know this and such a date, I walked for half an hour or whatever. And so students were really remiss about handing in these cards. And one of these cards that is still remains in the Smith College archives is this great card that gets entirely blank except for handwriting. It says, the trial of my life, written by a student who clearly was not enthusiastic. So Asenda, a one-woman team, must create an offensive strategy to challenge outdated notions of female frailty while simultaneously running defense to protect traditional ideals of womanhood. So how does Senda get her students excited about exercise? Luckily, she hears about a game that was just invented in a nearby town, one played with a ball and some peach baskets that just might do the trick. Little did she know that it would be a trick shot that scored major points for women's equality, and its impact would be felt around the country for centuries. That's after the break. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you've got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Start hiring right now with the $75 sponsor job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com spinsters. Offer valid through March 31st. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash Finsters to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy. And Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. Indeed.com slash Finsters. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Our next partner has a product I use every morning first thing when I wake up or when my dog wakes me up. It's Athletic Greens, which is essentially a bunch of supplements and probiotics and words that sound made up. They're so healthy like adaptogens, all mixed into one green scoop. 
which I can mix into water in the morning and carry around with me as I start the day. I started using Athletic Greens because I'm lazy. This is a wonderful endorsement so far, and I didn't want to take a bunch of vitamins in the morning. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash spin. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash spin to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Gym class was one thing, but asking these women to play outside in a Massachusetts winter was a non-starter. So Zinda has to find a game for her girls to play inside. Group games of any kind were unheard of. I looked about, and as luck would have it, I read in a small magazine on Phys Ed that the Springfield Training School was publishing monthly an indoor game that was invented as a class exercise by one of the men, called Basket Ball. Springfield is pretty much next door to Northampton, and this is where the father of basketball, James Naismith, invents the game. And Cinda is all in. I no sooner saw it that I tried it in my general classes, dividing the class in two, putting half on one side, and used peach baskets strung up by ropes to the balcony. Back in her gymnasium, Cinda has everything ready and tests out basketball as a class exercise with her students, but with some modifications to the rules. Because, as Dr. Davey told me, You cannot take the rules of men's basketball as they were in 1891 and just full-scale apply them to women because that was, that was just not okay. She was really motivated by this idea that you would have a game that would not just exercise the body and be about play and be fun, but it would combine these elements of play and fun with these elements that were so central to gymnastics and physical education. As for Senda and her students... We no sooner tried it that we liked it. And about a fortnight before the end of the winter term, we picked a freshman and sophomore team... 10 in each to play a match game. Yeah, and the girls go wild for it. They love it, and after a month of using basketball in class, Cinda decides to organize the first official game of women's basketball. The first game is freshman versus sophomore, with the junior class cheering on the freshmen and the senior class cheering on the sophomores. When Cinda, Barron, and Abbott selected the first women to play in that first basketball game, she sent them formal engraved invitations. This tradition continued, and I actually found one such invitation in the archives. It reads, Dear Miss Mitchell, You're appointed to play center on the 1900 basketball sub-team. Yours cordially, Senda Berenson. Inside, two teams await for Senda to start the first women's basketball game in America. And to also start something wonderful for future generations of women to come. All doors were locked, no men were allowed in, in the interest of modesty, and it was sophomores against freshmen. Cinda really did not think anyone would show up to this game, maybe a few students tops, so she was very, very surprised to see a line of students formed around the building, waiting to be let inside. The whole college with class colors and banners turned out. They filled the broad balcony, the early ones sitting on the edge dangling their legs. They stood all along the walls. And they screamed. 
They packed the stands, waving green banners for the freshmen and lavender for the sophomores. As one spectator recalls, the cheering and screaming of the spectators was a high-pitched sound I do believe no one had ever heard before and was deafening. There were accounts in local newspapers of players that were racing around, they were grabbing the ball, there was a player who's playing center who dislocated her shoulder, allegedly when she was, you know, just at the initial point when Berenson tossed up the ball and she did the tap and dislocated her shoulder. There is immediate backlash. Women's basketball is criticized for being distasteful and unwomanly. So, yeah, it's accused of, quote, eroding sacred concepts of womanhood, as previously well-bred young ladies could be seen running and falling, shrieking in excitement, and, worst of all, calling each other by nicknames. I love that quote because I'm like, what do we think they were calling each other? Material girl! I have no idea. I'm going back to the bras. (laughs) I looked up some of the 1900s insults they would have been calling each other and it would be goop for a stupid person or like weisenheimer for someone who thinks she is smarter than everyone else weisenheimer <laughs> okay <laughs> also gwyneth paltrow goop uh branding not so good in the early days <laughs> there's all sorts of craziness you know or what looks like craziness to sort of outside spectators and this is put in newspapers The media portrays the game as very barbaric. The local paper publishes a depiction of the players as these wild-eyed gladiators. And as one LA Times reporter would later write of a high school game, there was something disquieting in the grim and murderous determinations with which the young ladies chased each other all over the court. Yikes. That's bad publicity. Doctors are anything but reassuring. They claim that playing basketball will give girls tuberculosis, as well as cause malnutrition, chronic fatigue, and infertility. A girl playing basketball on her period was especially dangerous, they warned, as the psychic and emotional element of competitive sports would exacerbate an already unstable condition, which would cause irregularities to her cycle that would hinder her most important function, reproduction. I have to mention this. The fear at the time is that all of this unwomanly behavior will have not just physical and psychological consequences, but social ones as well. Basketball would mar a girl's marriage potential, and God forbid we have an entire generation of spinsters. Spinsters, streaming wherever you get your podcasts. Even though Senda realizes the potential of basketball for women as a sport, she also sees these red flags, and so she dials back the roughness of the game even more, knowing that any departure from the era's middle-class morality could lead to losing the game of basketball altogether. Thus begins the long process of domesticating women's basketball. Senda pushes tighter and tighter rules to make it safer for women to play, as well as to keep it well within the mainstream of social convention. So, Senda divides the court into three sections, to which players are assigned and forced to remain throughout the whole game to prevent overexertion. This way, women couldn't tire themselves out by running all over the court. This modified court also discourages star playing, or what we call hogging the ball. Cinda also shortens the game significantly so that it doesn't overtax the female body. So some of Cinda's rules included things like no grabbing the ball from another player's hands. Hmm. Players couldn't dribble more than three times before passing or shooting the ball. And this was to dissuade anybody from becoming a ball hog. They couldn't hold the ball for more than three seconds. 
guarding each other was a no-no and definitely no falling down on court. That constituted a foul. Eat your heart out, Marcus Smart. <laughs> I was going to say, tough luck, Anthony Davis. You would be not allowed <laughs> to play. <laughs> yeah, and even with all of these modifications, parents were still enraged that their daughters were playing basketball, and they organized and tried to get the sport abolished entirely. So Cinda, she knew that she had to figure out a way to make basketball palatable. So she used this approach she called cookies and milk. And she joined basketball games with a charity event or a fancy dinner so that it wasn't the primary focus of a gathering. It was more of an afterthought or after dinner entertainment. But as long as it was coupled with appropriate, proper mingling, then it was deemed a little more acceptable for parents. After the dinner, the form of entertainment for the night would be a game of basketball. This sounds exactly like at my D2 college when we would lure people with Chick-fil-A sandwiches just so that they could come watch us play. Because they would not watch us without food there. Since women's worth is measured by beauty, grace, and form, women's basketball endeavors to maintain this in the game's rules. All players are expected to be womanly at all times, Foul mouths and manners get timeouts just as much as personal fouls on court, if not more. Players are basically told that the same rules of etiquette hold, whether or not they're on a basketball court or in a drawing room, and they're not allowed to chew gum, name call, or sit on the floor. They have to shoot the basketball with their pinkies up. Here's a funny example. The two-handed pass or throw was made a foul because it was said to cause the shoulders to be forwardly inclined with consequent flattening of the chest. At this time, proper women kept their bodies concealed. The girls originally play basketball in heavy floor-length skirts, high-necked and long-sleeved shirtwaists, slippers, and corsets. Or girdles. So I invite anyone who has ever given flack to women's basketball for being easier than the men's to try a game wearing that get-up. That sounds like a nightmare. Everything is constricting. You're not supposed to move. And everything is concealing. Only fingers, necks, and heads are exposed. This is not the most comfortable uniform, and naturally it leads to a great deal of tripping, a few proper bones, and a decent number of black eyes. So, in one regard, the doctors and parents are right. The game is dangerous, but not because of female frailty, just female attire. Don't worry, bloomers are welcomed as the standard uniform a few years later, but from our perspective of modern athleisure, these bloomers won't seem that comfortable either. Athletic garb in the mid-1890s was made of wool. The only choice, so they were not light and probably very itchy. The bloomers, which look like really long baggy shorts, were fully pleated, usually worn with a girdle, cinched at the waist and tied around the calves, which in turn were covered in long stockings. And neck scarves or bow ties were commonly worn, because fashion. It is widely assumed that women are too selfish to be good teammates. Most of their tasks and pursuits are individual anyway, so this notion of working as one is pretty revolutionary. One of the central things in basketball was really important to work as one, to work as one unit. So you're all of these individuals, but you're working as one unit and nobody can dominate. And it wasn't just the players having fun. It really was a spectator sport. Almost all Smith students showed up and were swept up in the fervor. Students would go bananas for their class. So there was just pandemonium. And that was something I think that Cindy Berenson and probably, I don't think anybody really accounted for. And so 
Berenson actually had to make rules for spectators, where spectators were not allowed to cheer just willy-nilly. There were pre-planned cheers that were handed out in these little booklets. They were quite peppy. So it allowed spectators to cheer while also being kind of uh, articulate and controlled because you didn't want them out of control. Thanks to Zenda's contagious enthusiasm for basketball, women across the country were empowered to realize their own athletic potential and to have fun while doing it. This is great, except for one big glaring problem. Unlike men's basketball, there are no coherent standardized rules of play for the women's game. No two teams play by the same rules, so intercollegiate games are practically impossible to organize. Plus, there's the matter of the limited and often withheld funds and inadequate or non-existent facilities which threatened basketball survival. In order to legitimize the sport, it becomes necessary to set uniform rules so that everyone is playing the same game and with the same spirit of play for play's sake. Spalding's Athletic Library, which had just published a pamphlet of rules for men's basketball in 1893, recruits Senda to create the women's version. And under her direction, each edition is an enthusiastic, albeit not entirely scholarly, compilation of research from anyone and everyone invested in women's basketball. I enjoyed reading these. There are essays, articles, questions, and editorials from doctors, educators, players, and total nobodies, pretty much anybody who was interested in designing the best game possible for the female player. Throughout these modifications, Senda emphasizes good sportsmanship. Our first game modification of the rules. We made a point in the beginning to develop good sportsmanship. You must remember, this was the first team game the girls ever played. From the first, the winning team gave a dinner to the defeated team. Girls sat together who'd played against each other, and speeches of goodwill were made by the captains and the gym faculty. And I was proud of this spirit of those girls. So these Spalding Guides, which come out over well, 15, 20 years, become the standard source of basketball rules and articles for women physical educators. In 1905, Cinda organizes the Basketball Committee for Women to oversee its publication, and she really makes sure that every issue highlights the need for the modern woman to cultivate not just physical and moral courage, but also virtues like sportsmanship and leadership. Cinda approaches the rule modifications very scientifically. Every change is made with extreme care after experimentation, analysis, and reflection on the impact of societal issues and women's rights. So originally, women's basketball had Naismith's unlimited dribble rule. Then it changed to a three-bounce dribble at knee height. Then it changed to no dribble. Then one dribble at knee height. Then to two dribbles. Then to three dribbles. Then back to unlimited dribble. And dribbling in 1910 was eliminated entirely. But then people started complaining, and it was reinstated, single dribble, eight years later in 1918. But it was still had to be at least knee height. They might seem like silly little modifications, but every single one was reflective of a societal change, a change in social norms and expectations of what a woman could and could not do. So basically, by playing by the rules set by society and operating within these pre-existing definitions and expectations of womanhood, Women's basketball was then able to surreptitiously challenge the status quo and gain ground within the athletic sphere. The Spalding series is really representative of the ongoing task of negotiating what women can and cannot do, not just physically, but in every realm within society. There are these negotiations that happen 
And there are negotiations that happen really between Senda and her students who are playing basketball. And there are negotiations between the college and parents who are looking at this and saying, yikes, this is, this is different. There's negotiations between, you know, the college and, you know, the larger community who are really curious about this new game. The committee knows that rocking the boat too much will only incite louder outcry. And Senda knows that they are in for a long fight against traditions that are hundreds of years old. Even though it ends up taking several decades, this trial and error approach to women's basketball rules is seen as the path of least resistance. Cinda was a pioneer of female educators who really capitalized on this rare opportunity to make and play games by their own rules, which was something previously unheard of in a society that thought women were biologically inferior. Rather than being a simplified version of a male sport, women's basketball evolved as something entirely different, a sport constructed by women for women. But if Cinda so revolutionized women's athletics, why do so few of us know her name? Women were second-class citizens in so many ways for so long. And the Basketball Hall of Fame was a male institution. There was this struggle to actually get her recognized by the Basketball Hall of Fame. Don't worry. That protest from October 1984 did the trick. Because the Basketball Hall of Fame started getting public funding and was being moved to a new hall, there was no longer an excuse for narrow-minded chauvinism. Senda is inducted in 1985, 31 years after she passed away at 85 years old. The game is truly an international sport, being played in over 160 nations right now in the world, in backyards, back streets, and anywhere a ball and a hoop can be found. So it's only appropriate that as a mother of women's basketball, Senda Barons and Abbott, be one of the first women elected to the Basketball Hall of Fame. Her niece, Ruth Berenson, accepted the enshrinement in her honor. Well, this is a tremendous honor. It's a tremendous honor for me, and I only wish Senda were here because she would be truly, truly proud. She was quite a dame, my cousin Senda. She was so much more than just the person who brought basketball to Smith and to women. She had this whole cultural side to her, uh, a political side to her, uh, concern for American society, world peace, and all those things. Basketball was, in her mind, just a tool to achieve a greater goal for women and for society in general. Beneath every game of women's basketball, if you look closely enough, is this embedded narrative of women's suffrage. It's a microcosm of everything women have fought for and are still fighting for. Maybe Senda was in the right place at the right time. But we're lucky because she had the energy to do everything that she did. You can look at her life, her story, and see so clearly where the changes in American society were happening and how she responded. You can see how she was molded by and molded changing social norms. I mean, her time at Smith was really just the prequel. Senda saw there was so much more to come. Although all games possible should be introduced and developed, basketball will perhaps be the most popular and is certainly the most highly organized of all games. And there is no game that brings out these elements all women possess as basketball when carefully guarded and guided. What I'm trying to say is that people are going to love basketball. 
This episode of Spinsters was written and reported by Bronwyn Clark. Our editor was Buffy Gorilla with production by Harry Krinsky, Misha Jones, Alex Ward, Isabel Jocelyn, and me, Jordan Liggins. Fact-checking by Mary Mathis and voice acting by Rivka Rivera. Our production coordinator is Devin Shepard, and our executive producers are Peter Moses, John Yells, and Haley O'Shaughnessy. Hi, Haley. Hi, Jordan. My name is Kirk Henderson. I, oh, gosh, screwed that up.